Will you pray with me? Father, as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, we confess our need for you, that by your Holy Spirit you would give us understanding, that you would teach us the truth of your word. And God, we ask that you would take your word and apply it to our lives by your Holy Spirit. And now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> What's the difference between biblical wisdom and worldly wisdom? If, if I would ask you to tell me who are some wise people that you know of, you are aware of in history, wise people of history... Who are the people that come to mind? Kind of in a caveat with that, with that question, do you make a distinction between biblical wisdom and worldly wisdom when you begin to think of those names? Who are people of history that we would consider to be wise? If I hadn't given you that kind of uh, that, that precursor, that statement to distinguish between biblical wisdom and Godly wisdom, who are people that you might have said? Abraham Lincoln. Who else? Albert Einstein. Great one. Who else? Ben Franklin. All right. Winston Churchill. Yes. The Wright brothers. Okay. Isaac, Sir Isaac Newton. Yes. Uh, great, yeah. All the people that I would have thought of as well, pl plus more. I mean, we could probably name more. Confucius or, or Gandhi. We would even say those were wise men, right? Socrates, yeah. Socrates, uh, Plato, Michelangelo. I mean, guys from the Renaissance. I mean, we could, we could go on and on of thinking of these people who have kind of stood head and shoulders above the West arrest, at least for their, their intelligence, right? But let me ask you a follow-up question. What then makes a person wise? Is it their intelligence quotient, their IQ? Is it their EQ, as it's been determined today, their emotional quotient? Is it their age? Is it life experience? What, what is it that makes a person wise? Well, this morning I want to talk to you about the foundation of wisdom. From Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29, Jesus has something to say about wisdom. In fact, according to Jesus, wise men and women build their life on the foundation of hearing and heeding God's word. Wise men and women build the foundation or build their life on the foundation of hearing and heeding God's word. So if you find your place in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, I want to invite you to follow along as I read. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. 
And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. An interesting way for Matthew to cap off there the Sermon on the Mount. Well, as we consider this last text this morning of the Sermon on the Mount, we noted several weeks back that as Jesus began to conclude the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verse 13 through the end, through verse 27 that we see this morning, Jesus is saying something specifically and uniquely to his disciples, to all those who are, who are there listening, to his disciples and those crowds that have gathered who are listening to what Jesus is teaching. And he's saying, action must be taken to enter the kingdom of God. And then he demonstrates it by closing with this metaphorical series of twos. Gives these different metaphors that are series of twos. There are two paths, right? Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7, right? Enter by the narrow gate, not the wide gate. For when you enter the narrow gate, the narrow way is hard, but it's a path that leads to life. The wide gate is the easy road that leads to destruction. Or there, there, there are two trees or two fruits we see in chapters 15 through, uh, verses 15 through 20. There's the false prophet, which, is, which speaks and deceives, and, and the false prophet produces bad fruit. And he talks about the healthy tree versus the diseased tree. The healthy tree versus the disease, or the healthy fruit versus the diseased fruit. So, so there, again, there are, there are these one of two ways, right? Jesus is clearly putting forth this evidence for entering the kingdom of God. There there are one of two ways. Either enter by this way or go this other path and you cannot enter. There are two destinations in verses 21 through 23. The two destinations are, are seen there, not Everyone who says to me, right, not everyone who confesses, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Some are going to come to Jesus and he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I didn't know you. There's one of two ways here. There's either entering into the presence of God or entering hell, eternal destruction. And finally, there are, there are two houses, two foundations by two types of builder. In other words, what Jesus is saying, it's not enough just to hear the Sermon on the Mount. It's not enough just to hear his teaching. Hearing must be accompanied by action. And so what Jesus is teaching us is that faith which gains entrance into God's kingdom is reflected by more than mere words. Faith which gains entrance into God's kingdom is reflected by more than mere words. That means that there has to be action on the life of the, in the life of the disciple, on the part of the disciple. But, you know, this isn't just the witness of what Jesus says. This isn't just his testimonial record as he teaches through the Sermon on the Mount. This is also the record of all of Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament in its entirety. 
God's people are called to take action to live rightly in response to God's word. Joshua 24, 15. As the people of Israel uh, are about to see their great military leader Joshua pass away, Joshua gives God's people, as they're standing there, having entered the promised land, but still having conquests left to go, all right, still needing to continue in the journey, Joshua gives this word to God's people. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, Choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, Joshua says, we will what? Serve the Lord. Or in the New Testament, James, James chapter 1, verse 22, what does James say? James says, But be doers of the word, not merely hearers who are deceiving yourselves. So you see, what Jesus has been calling us to throughout all of the Sermon on the Mount is that we be more than just hearers, but that we be hearers who act God's Word out. And not just play act, but who live out God's Word. There's an action that accompanies hearing of God's Word. There's an action that accompanies the transformed life of the kingdom citizen. And that action, it's found in deep obedience Deep obedience to Christ's teaching, to Christ's word. So Jesus calls us to attention with this last metaphor, two houses, two foundations, two men. And what he calls us to attention for is that we might be examiners. Examiners who who set out to distinguish between two types of builders. To distinguish between Two types of builders. Immediately as we read this parable of sort, we, we want to identify with the one who built his or her life on the rock and not on the sand. In fact, as we read it, we think, huh, how foolish for someone to build his life, to build her life, to build the house. How foolish for them to build a house on the sand. Everyone knows that you don't build a house and build a foundation on sand. Everyone knows you have to shore up the foundation, right? I mean, that's what we think when we read this. That's silly. But when we look at the two houses, we need to realize what Jesus is teaching here. The two houses are exactly the same. Lloyd-Jones talks about how they're exactly the same. Aesthetically, they're probably, they probably look exactly the same. You can't tell them apart. And the point that Jesus is making is, is that while you can't tell these things apart, because when you look at them, they sit side by side. And in modern day terms, we might say, well, the chimneys on the right side on both houses, they have the same brick veneer, same brick design, same front porch design, or maybe even the same design wrapping all around it. It, it doesn't matter, except... And etc. Right, all of these things look the same. When you look at this house, you can't tell anything is different about this house. But then we get to the two men, and we do have a distinction between the two men. But these two men are—they're going about life probably at a, a normal pace. We might say today that they both have jobs. They. Maybe they both have nice vehicles. Maybe they, they even go to the same church, sit under the same preacher, listen to the same message Sunday in and Sunday out. Maybe even go to the same Sunday school study and listen to that same Sunday school lesson day in or week in and week out. Their children play together. They're both part of the neighborhood association. The list could go on and on and on. But there is one distinction between these two men. And that distinction is that one is wise and the other is foolish. 
Now, the wise one is a good listener. He's teachable. He's moldable. But the other man is foolish. He does not listen. Jesus says in verse 24, the one who hears these words of mine and does them. The wise man, the wise one, hears and heeds God's word. There are also two foundations. The wise man, hearing and heeding, builds his house on the rock. In Luke's gospel, Luke gives us this account in Luke 6.48, and it describes the intentionality of this man. It says in Luke 6.48 that he, he digs deep until he hits the rock, and he founds the foundation, he founds the house on the rock. He grounds it there. The second house. The second house is the foolish man. He, he doesn't do this. He just builds his house. He lays his foundation on the sand and doesn't shore it up. And the result of the two men's actions are seen in how the house weathers a storm, right? Look at verse 25. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew, and beat against that house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. Right? He had dug down deep. There was some intentionality in this man's planning, right? He did his research. He did his homework. He, he thought perceptibly about things. He considered the best way to go about this building process verse 26 everyone who hears these words of mine no verse 27 excuse me and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house the one that was founded on the sand and it fell right and he says and great was its fall now it doesn't matter how nice the home is it doesn't matter how beautiful it appears to be. If the foundation is faulty, the house will not stand. So the foundation of the home is key to its integrity, is key to its ability to weather the storm that beats against it. And so Jesus is saying, just as it is for the foundation of the house, so it is for the person who hears his word. Building the house is a metaphor for building our lives on the foundation of Christ and the Word of God. Building the foundation and the house is a metaphor for building our lives on the foundation of Christ and the Word of God. The builder of the house is every individual who hears Jesus' teaching. The foundation that he builds on regards whether or not he heeds or she heeds Jesus' teaching. And the house being built is one's life. So the foolish man, the foolish man is the one who hears Jesus' teachings but refuses to follow them. He does nothing. Lloyd-Jones in his commentary, Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount says there are four characteristics of the foolish man. First, he's always in a hurry. Always in a hurry, never taking time to pause and to consider things. He doesn't stop to listen to instruction, secondly. He doesn't stop to listen to instruction. He doesn't care about the rules that govern building a house. 
All he cares about is the way that things appear to be, right? He wants, he wants the facade to look nice, so let's get there. Let's make everything look packaged and neat and really nice. But thirdly, he, he considers listening to others unnecessary. The fool doesn't listen to anyone. His ideas, her ideas, are the best. They can't learn anything from anyone because they're not open to learning. Or fourth, the, the fool doesn't stop to consider the possibilities or even the eventualities. You see, the foolish one is the one who rebels against divine authority, who rebels against God's divine revelation. Chuck Quarles in his commentary says, just as confessions of faith without expressions of obedience don't guarantee salvation, hearing without heeding Jesus' teaching leaves us unprepared for divine judgment, leaves us unprepared for the storm that is coming. Verse 21 of chapter 7, Jesus says, Not everyone, right, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. See how hearing and heeding play an integral part of faith in Christ, of kingdom living, You see, the fool in his or her folly makes no room for God. The fool in his or her folly lives for self in the interest of self. In fact, self is the fool's God. They may even attend church and have all the external adornments of of a pious religious life, but inwardly, there's no heart that beats for the things of God. There's no hungering or thirsting for righteousness like Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Their life is just a shell. It's like a whitewashed tomb, right? All nice and pretty on the outside, but full of dead men's bones on the inside. They build their house on the sand of self-sufficiency. The fool builds his house on the sand of good works or on the sand of making their own way to God or on the sand of morality or on the sand of God's goodness and blessing and prosperity all the while dismissing God's justness and his, and, and his call of submission and, and solidarity with Christ in sufferings. And this is what the prosperity gospel does, right? What we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are, are ravenous wolves. The foolish lay their foundation on the shifting sand of cultural tide and of cultural views of God rather than the rock-solid revealed biblical truth of God. And so what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is calling us to inspect our own foundation. What's our own foundation look like? As we examine our lives up against his teaching, specifically, it's a demonstrative pronoun there in In verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine, referring to the teaching that he he has given in the Sermon on the Mount. So when we look at our lives against God's word and particularly against Jesus' teaching, this is what he's calling those hearers in the crowd to do is examine their lives against this teaching. What are they building the foundation of their life on? What are we building the foundation of our life on? You see, the foolish man or woman is one who lives without Jesus. On the contrary, the wise man or woman is one who hears and heeds Jesus' teaching. And if the foolish are described as those who live without Christ, 
then the wiser those who live with Christ. Or as the Apostle Paul would say in, letter, uh, in later New Testament epistles, he would say those who have their identity in Christ. So being wise means living righteously. This is what Jesus is pointing us to in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, this word wise, it appears seven times in Matthew's gospel. And most frequently, when it appears, it describes one who wisely prepares for the coming of Messiah through faithful service and obedient living. Now, maybe that sounds drab and boring to some. I don't know. But I would say to those who think so, there are many things that I regret in my life. But surrendering my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is not one of them. There's not a day goes by that I regret surrendering my life to Jesus Christ. I've never regretted surrendering my life to Christ. You see, the key to building one's life on the rock is found in relationship to Jesus Christ. And implicit in our relationship with Christ is joyful obedience through righteous living. Jesus is saying the one who builds his or her life on the foundation of my word is the one who will weather the storm of destruction. Now, there are really two storms that we can think of here. But the primary storm that Jesus is speaking of is the storm of God's eschatological judgment, his divine wrath, his divine judgment. This is the point that Jesus speaks to in Matthew 24 later as he's finishing the gospel in Matthew 24, 37, where he says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. In fact, we don't just see in Jesus' teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount, but we see it as the entirety of scriptural record. That throughout scripture, storms represent God's wrath poured out on his people. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23, shows this. Jeremiah chapter 30, Isaiah, Isaiah 28, Ezekiel 13. The prophets speak of storms representing God's wrath, God's divine judgment being poured out on his people. And though our trials and storms in this life will be many. Look at chapter 7, verse 14. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few, right? Though the trials and storms of, of this life will be many. Or Matthew 5.10, consider what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says to them, when that happens, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Though our trials and storms in this life will be many, I don't think Jesus has the storms of life in mind here. Because the trials and difficulties we face now, as we enter the narrow road, as we enter the narrow gate of discipleship on the path of life, these trials are to be expected, right? It's the hard road. 
But these trials are nothing in comparison to the judgment of God on the sinner who has not repented of sin and surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The trials of this life will pale in comparison to the judgment of God on the sinner who has not repented of sin and surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. What Jesus is saying here is that the way we live matters. Not just hearing God's word, not just hearing his word, but heeding his word. Friends, don't be like the foolish builder who waited until the storm came. The point is when the storm comes, it's too late. So examine the foundation now. If we wait until the storm comes, it's too late. The foolish one built his house on the sand. And then when the rain fell and the torrents came and the wind blew, it beat and smashed that house and great was its fall. So Jesus is saying instead, let us be like the wise man. Wise men and women build their life on the foundation of hearing and heeding God's word. Let us all be home inspectors this morning of our own lives. How does our foundation look? Are you consistently hearing and heeding God's word? Which one of these characterizations best describes your life? The wise builder or the foolish builder? Let's be certain of our foundation. Let's be certain of our salvation. Let's examine ourselves in light of God's holy word. And let us examine ourselves often, church. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But for those who enter the narrow gate, the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. My point isn't to scare us this morning into thinking that we've lost our salvation, or to teach that we can lose our salvation, but rather to make certain of our salvation. Because it's an eternal and weighty matter. Secondly, this morning, we come face to face with the astonishing authority of Jesus. The astonishing authority of Jesus. Do you hear the claims that Jesus has made throughout the Sermon on the Mount? Right? No one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless his righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You've heard it said, you shall not murder... But I say to you, don't even be angry with your brother because you're subject and liable to the court to judgment. You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you looked at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. You've already broken the law of God. You're already condemned, is what he's saying. So Jesus comes speaking with this unbelievable authority. They had never seen or heard anyone like Jesus who taught with such authority. In fact, in verse 28, he records the crowds were astonished when Jesus finished teaching. In verse 29, that he taught as one who had authority, not like the scribes. This is completely different. 
think the easiest way to illustrate this is to say that you know, it, it would be like me sending one of my children as my ambassador to communicate an important piece of information to one of their other siblings, such as, Dad said to stop being mean to me or you're going to be punished, right? And so the child goes and says this, and then 10 minutes later, he's back, right? Now, whenever he went and said this, he was speaking on barred authority. So in 10 minutes, when one of my children come back and, and later tell me the same thing has happened by the same offender, then I have to go out and I have to lay down the law. Punishment ensues because they didn't listen to, <coughs> to the one that I sent, right? So, but the one that I sent was acting on borrowed authority. But when I go, I'm bringing the absolute authority, right? I'm bringing down the hammer in one sense. When God the Son entered our humanity, He did not come acting and speaking with borrowed authority. He came acting and speaking with absolute authority. Jesus spoke with the absolute authority of God because He is God. Six times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, or I tell you, Normally, when a prophet would come and speak, they would have said, thus says the Lord. But that's not what Jesus says. You don't find him saying that. You, you find Jesus saying, truly, truly, I say to you. And so Jesus refers to his own authority when he's interpreting God's word. <laughs> that's cool. When we see this authority of Christ evidenced in the scripture. Even more in chapter 5, six times, as I mentioned, six times we see him interpreting God's law where Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, this, but I say to you. In other words, you've heard the teachings about the law, but I say to you, here's the real teaching of God's law. And so Jesus comes in and he redefines the ethic. He redefines and interprets the law of God as it was intended to be understood. And so Jesus is giving us the foundation on which to build our lives as kingdom citizens. So that as Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, we realize that our depravity before God is such that we're sinners and we're not deserving of God's grace. And we realize that that through our impoverished spirit, we, we are led to mourn over our sin, crying out to God for grace and mercy. That's, that's the Beatitudes. And, and then we learn to hunger and thirst for righteousness as we come before God, seeking Him. And we're satisfied with the spiritual nourishment that comes from being in Christ. This is what happens for kingdom citizens. And these kingdom characteristics of the Beatitudes... They, come, they become, for us, kingdom realities as we are transformed inwardly when we're walking with Christ. We grow in mercy. We grow in purity of heart. We spread the gospel of peace in the midst of persecution. We learn a new kingdom ethic for living. A kingdom ethic that transforms us from the inside out as we commune with our Heavenly Father. Just as Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, pray this way. 
our Father who art in heaven. He is a heavenly Father that we can come to and we can commune with Him. And He's much better than the earthly Father. If you earthly fathers know how to good give, give know how to give good gifts, how much more will your Father in heaven know how to give good gifts? So come to this, this Father who is good. Ask and seek and knock. We learn this new ethic for kingdom living. We learn to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Or don't store for yourself treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven, right? Where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We learn to treasure and value those things of God's kingdom as we walk in deep obedience and, and walk with Christ and walk in Christ. We learn deep abiding trust in God's sovereignty. So that we are anxious for nothing. But exercise a complete dependence on God for everything. We learn the key to kingdom living is building our lives on the foundation of Christ's word through deep obedience. There is hearing and heeding as we live out God's word. So let me ask you this morning, what kind of builder are you? Are you a wise builder? Are you a foolish builder? Jesus gives us the foundation for wisdom. What kind of church are we going to be? Are we going to be a church that is filled with people who are wise builders? A beatitude kind of church? One that exercises grace and mercy toward one another? Are, are we walking the hard path that leads to life, having entered the narrow gate? Or we find ourselves kind of coasting down life's highway, the easy way. It doesn't mean everything in the Christian life is hard. But it does mean that we ought to expect that there are going to be trials and difficulties and hardships in the midst of our life. I can repeat that. Are we walking the hard path that leads to life? Are we living for God's kingdom? Or are we living for our own? That's the real question. Are we living for God's kingdom or are we living for our own? I pray this morning that you're living for God's kingdom. That every one of us is building like the wise builder and not like the foolish builder. But this morning, if you recognize that you've been laying the foundation on the shifting sand of culture or your own good works or your own morality or whatever else, something other than the foundational truth of God's word, I want to challenge you to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I want to be here to speak with you about what that means. And so I can certainly pray for you this morning up here, and I'm more than willing to do that, but I, I will also speak with you after service about what it means to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe for you, believer, this involves a step of faith where you say, you know what, I, I've been going down the easy road, and I've realized my sin, and I'm confessing that before the Lord this morning, and I'm returning. I need to return and re re-engage building my life my house 
on this rock-solid foundation of God's Word. However the Lord is convicting you this morning to respond, respond, and then share that with someone so that you have some accountability. Someone to hold you accountable in this commitment that you're making before the Lord. Let us pray, and you respond this morning as the Lord leads you. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And though your word can be very hard sometimes and even can cut us deep because of our own sin. Lord, we thank you that you're gracious and merciful to us. We thank you that you don't leave us and you don't forsake us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have made the way for us to have salvation. Even the promise of your word at the end of the gospel of Matthew, where you say, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and therefore you tell us to go, and you promise that you will be with us as we go. And so I pray, Father, that you would strengthen us this morning to respond to your Holy Spirit prompting. I pray that you would strengthen us to live for you, to re-engage building our lives on the foundation of your word. Father, would you strengthen our church as well, that we might be a people who are central and centered in your word. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray.